All right, we are in the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're new with us, uh, we are in chapter 6 this evening, and so glad you could join us. We are walking through the book of Ecclesiastes, one of the three main Old Testament wisdom books. You have Proverbs, you have Ecclesiastes, and you have the book of Job. And in addition, sometimes you have wisdom literature scattered throughout the Song of Solomon and the Psalms. Uh, When taken together as a trinity, if you will, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job, we get the full view of wisdom that we should have. Can't only take Proverbs and be wise, can't only take Ecclesiastes and be wise, and you can't only take Job and be wise. You must take all three, mesh them together, wrestle them together, and you will be then wise. Now, this Ecclesiastes 6 that we're going to be in tonight has been described as one of, if not the darkest chapter in the entire Bible. Yes, (laughs) excellent, just what I was hoping for this evening. However, we will end on a glorious note of light and hope and spaciousness that God offers us in Jesus and in the gospel. God's bright light of hope for a glorious, spacious, and joyful future. Now, this image is one of a desert and the sun, and this series is called Everything Under the Sun. Under the sun is a common phrase that reoccurs in Ecclesiastes over and over and over, and it simply means life without God in view, life without eternity in view, life in a secular age, if you will. And so the teacher, who I think is Solomon, is probing all of the earth to see if he can find some kind of joy, some kind of meaning, some kind of lasting satisfaction outside of God. He is on a quest, and he is writing for us very transparently his quest. We will start in 6, 1 to 2. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun. Notice the under the sun. And it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth possessions and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. That means breath, vapor, or mist. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. Now, the trouble we have upon the first reading of this text is it seems on the surface that God is the one who is doing evil. Look, there is an evil that I've seen under the sun. And then at the end, it is a grievous evil. Well, what's the evil? It's this. A man to whom God gives wealth, so God's giving wealth, but then, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them. So God gives wealth, possessions, and he gives uh, honor, but God doesn't give, with that gift, the power to enjoy. And then he says, this is an evil. Now, here's what you need to know about the word evil in Hebrew. It's ra, okay, and I'm not uh, Jewish. I don't know ancient Hebrew, so I can't say it like they say it, but ra is a good way to say it, and it can be translated many ways. It can be translated evil, which the ESV takes, but in addition, it can be translated calamity, misfortune or disaster. Calamity, misfortune, or disaster. I think maybe better to take misfortune or disaster or calamity here than evil. God is not the author of evil, nor does he do evil. Though he permits it and uses it for his good purposes, evil does accomplish his will. God is not the one here doing evil in this text. So let's talk about it. There is an evil 
that I have seen under the sun. I've noticed this calamity, this tragedy under the sun. What is it? It's a man that God gives wealth. Now, wealth in other portions of Ecclesiastes can be gained through oppression and injustice. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here is God is the giver. And there is a legit form of wealth that God gives that is to be enjoyed by its owners. Hard work and responsibility and living out the Proverbs will sometimes, not all the time, land in wealth and possessions and honor. So the honor there means this person is living uprightly. Honor shows that people respect this person so that he lacks nothing of all he desires. Okay, so this, this person has desires and he has enough wealth that he can explore any desire that he would like. This is Solomon's story, isn't it? Just endless resources, endless power. Whatever he wants, he gets. Whatever he wants to try, he tries. And he is honored, honored. Now, this chapter 6 is going to be with these themes. Desires and unsatisfied desires and then seeking satisfaction. Desires, unsatisfied desires, and then seeking satisfaction out of life. So this man... This one in this chapter 6 can, can do all he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. Now, we don't know exactly why he doesn't get to enjoy them and why the stranger does, okay? It could be war, like war can ruin all of your wealth instantaneously, and another then seizes all your assets, and you might be in some kind of political prison camp. That, that happens frequently in history. It could be that he died, and all of his wealth, possessions, and just went to someone else. It could be that he invested in some kind of scheme that got him in trouble, and perhaps he's in jail. We don't know why, okay? But what we do know is that now a stranger is enjoying all that this one worked for, and Solomon's conclusion is this is a grievous evil. This is terrible, is what he's saying. Now, this is a clear contrast to what just came before in chapter 5. Many of you weren't here, and some of you have already forgotten. So let's look at the last three verses of Ecclesiastes 5 that Justin so well preached for us last week. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment. You could translate that and see good. In all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Okay, so he's commending here the enjoyment of eating and drinking and doing the work that God has given you to do and do it with joy and happiness. Live the life that God has given you and enjoy it. Verse 19, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So here, Solomon is saying, God does give possessions and wealth and some kind of toil that's meaningful. And if that's you, you should enjoy it. This is your lot. In other words, accept the lot that God has 
given to you. Accept the hand you've been dealt is another way to say it. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Now this is a very positive and uplifting view. This is what we want. We want to be so occupied with the good work God has given us to do, with the food and friends that he's given us to enjoy, with the family that he's given us responsibility to partake in. We want to be so wrapped up in our lives that we're not thinking about how bad things are and how messed up we are and how broken the world is and plummeting into the pit. Notice, he will not much remember the days of his life. Why? Because his days, her days are filled up with good and with joy because they've accepted the hand they've been dealt and they're rejoicing in all that God has given them to do. Or you could say it like this, God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That's my prayer for you guys. And I literally pray this. God has given me a massive amount of responsibilities, and often I am not too joyful about them, and I pray against it. I say, God, give me the joy that I need to do what you've given me to do. A prayer just like that, I pray often. God, just let me get the joy. I'll work. I'll, I'll go sleepless. I'll toil. Just let me enjoy what you've given me to do, please. I pray that all the time. I commend that prayer to you. I think that uh, 520 would recommend that prayer. And so this is the opposite, isn't it? This is God giving possessions and honor and wealth, and yet you can't enjoy. You don't spend your days uh, with joy. Rather, you are restless. I wonder how many of you tonight just find yourself in a restless, irritable, I can't wait to get out of my own skin type of sense about the season you're in. You just let me out of here. To where? I don't care. Out of here. And that doesn't mean if, if you're here or if you're at home or if you're down south somewhere and it's sunny, you just want out. This is a restlessness that we are familiar with. And this is what Ecclesiastes 6 speaks of. No desires can bring you joy. No exploration of appetites can bring you joy. You're just restless, restless, restless like a wanderer all the days of your life. Verse 3 to six, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he, is, he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity, breath, wind, vapor, and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place. Now, this is, this is kind of dark, okay? What's going on here is this. There were kings in the Old Testament, and there were individuals who had this many children. How is that possible? How's that possible? Well, not only concubines, but you can, there's no forbidding of marrying tons of people like there is in this land, okay? You can marry 10, 20, 30, Solomon had 300 wives. So it's easy to have that many children if you have that many wives. And the kings of the Old Testament had upwards of hundreds of children. Okay? This was a real thing. You can read it for yourself. And what he's saying is this. 
If, if, this is a hypothetical person here. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Now, back up. In the Old Testament, it was very much not 2019 America. Okay? We, sadly from our culture and sadly from the radical environmentalists, despise children. Okay? Children are a, are a resource-using blight on the planet. Okay? What are you doing having more than one child? In fact, what are you doing even having one child? Don't you understand they just suck up resources Okay? And for some of us who may not be so environmentally conscious, at least the radical types, we just don't want the responsibility of children. Because children are hard work. And someone's got to watch them while you're working. Or maybe you have to stop working and pursuing your goals to watch the children. You see, ch children are not seen as a blessing in our culture. They are seen as a hindrance. And so it's, it's, I've talked to many parents with many kids and what they say to me all the time is they get approached in public and say, don't you know how that kind of thing happens? Don't you understand how to stop this? That's a common thing that happens to families with a lot of children. And you might say, that's rude, but that's the common cultural flavor that we're in, not in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the more children you had, the more blessed you were. And if you had no children, you were seen as cursed by God. How opposite it is in our culture. So, so we'll go back to this, but look at this. Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Behold, children are a heritage. It could be translated inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Reward? Not hindrance to the planet and its resources, but rather a reward. They're like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is a very different view than our culture takes of children. Okay? This view is that children are an inheritance and they are a blessing. And just like a warrior who has a full clip, just like a warrior that has a full clip, so is the blessed one who has a bunch of kids. Not cursed, blessed. See it? Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Listen, guys, we need to take a, a, a counter-cultural view of children and family. Will you take the radical biblical stance that says, no, children are a blessing and the more the better? Or will you buy into the satanic opposite statement? Which our culture says, no, they are not a blessing. They are a curse from the Lord and a curse on the planet. And cursed are you if you have more than two. You know what I'm talking about. Either that or you're not reading the newspaper. Friends, we need to take a stand on biblical truth and say, I don't care if you don't agree. God has sent me into the world with truth to fight the lie, the capital lie, which is Satan himself. Did you know that when you battle lies, you are literally doing satanic warfare? And this is a lie from the pit of hell, friends. And you have been duped if you believe it. Now, I say that with force because I listen closely to what the culture is saying. And it is satanic. You can hear the hiss. If you have a biblical worldview, you will not see children as a curse you will see them 
as a blessing. How about Job 3, 11 to 15? Now, the question I want to ask next is this, okay? Because some of us, some of us have experienced what is about to be said here. And I'm sensitive to that. What's said is this. There are one who had, there are some who have uh, children and the years are many, which was also an Old Testament sign of God's blessing. The patriarchs lived many years in pre, uh, pre-flood. These people were living 900 years. You know, read your genealogies. You're like, wow, 950 years, 800 some years, 700 some years. And burial was seen as honorable. Okay, so, so before I jump into the stillborn here, here's what's going on. This person, according to Old Testament culture, would have been severely blessed. Possessions, wealth, honor, hundreds of children, many years, but, but his soul is not satisfied. God has given all the good things of life, yet there's this deep unsatisfaction with this type of person here that, that Solomon is displaying for us and he has no burial so the burial piece that you're like that's weird in the ancient culture to disrespect someone to the highest degree was to not give them a burial you know what happened to Jezebel that ancient wicked queen do you remember how she died how'd she die the dogs ate her and that was a sign of God's curse not being buried but rather the scavengers will lick up her blood and eat her bones. That's what would happen. And so this man who can't find satisfaction is cursed. That's what, it's, that's what it's saying here. And then his view is, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Now, the stillborn child means you miscarry. Okay? Uh, I've experienced this. My wife and I have, have had a miscarry. Just after Addie was born, we got pregnant again, and we lost that baby shortly after. There, there's a certain pain and a certain angst that you can't understand unless you've experienced it yourself. Okay? And the reason I bring this up personally is because I have hope that whoever that child is, I'm going to see them again. And I'm going to seek to prove this in just a moment here. But you need to see this. The reason that Solomon says a stillborn child is better off is because it comes in vanity and goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest, rest rather than he. The reason he says this stillborn child is better is because the child is at rest. And this one who has wealth, possessions, honor, hundreds of kids is not at rest not satisfied, roaming, wandering desires that cannot be quenched. So that's the contrast. The stillborn child is at rest, and this restless one is no better off. In fact, he's worse off, is what Solomon says. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, that's 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to one place. He's talking about the grave. So the stillborn child and even this one will go to the grave. Now the question we need to ask, if the text brings it up, we could do a little bit of biblical theology here. And the question I want to pose here is, what happens when babies die or if they die in the womb? Where do they go? Do they go out of existence? Do they go to hell? Do they go to heaven? What happens? Have you ever pondered this question? hope you have. 
because I hope you have an answer to give when someone comes to you with the tragic news or it happens to you. And so this verse is not conclusive here, but it does say that this child is at rest, rest. Job 3, 11 to 15, in addition to Ecclesiastes, this is wisdom literature. Job lamenting his birth because of all his sufferings, he says this, why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Why did the breast that I, or why the breast that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. There it is again, rest. With kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves. Or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Now, look at the picture here. He's saying, I would be at rest and not in this terrible place of suffering if I would have just died in the womb. And where would I be if I died in the womb? He says, I would be with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Here's the next verses that follow that. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Now look at this. There the wicked cease from troubling. Wicked people can't trouble those who are at rest anymore. And then he says, and there where this stillborn infant is, there is rest. Do you rest in hell? Do you rest if you go out of existence? No, no. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, and in your presence is the fullness of joy, the psalmist says. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you, say it, Rest, not eternal torment and restless suffering. I'll give you rest. Now, here's a New Testament passage. We could, we could do this uh, with a lot of New Testament pa- passages, but I think this is one of the most conclusive. Then children were brought to him, that he, this is Jesus who, were being, who was being brought children, that he might lay his hand on them and pray. This is a blessing. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Look at this. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. I mean, I don't know how much more clear that could be. Don't hinder children from coming to me because such, these, just like these little ones that I'm putting my hands on and praying for, this is the kingdom of heaven. Right here, this little one. Now in 18, he says it uh, emphatically as well. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, the children. And then we could do some roundabout arguing like this. In Revelation 7, around the throne is every tribe, people, tongue, nation, language, all, everyone, everyone. How is that possible? Because there are surely those who have not heard the gospel and had an opportunity to believe. How will there be around the throne every tribe, nation, tongue, language, people? How? The children. That's the only way that makes sense. Because when children die, whether in the womb or in infancy, God saves them through the finished work of Jesus. Okay? 
Let's move on. Let's move on. I don't have all day to do this, but if you want more on that, we have a book on the bookstore. It's called Safe in the Arms of God, and it goes through text after text after text after text after text and proves from the Old and New Testament that when children die, they go safely into the arms of God. I recommend it for any of you and to give it as a gift for someone who you know who, have lo- who has lost a child. Safe in the Arms of God. It's back on the bookstore. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds, there it is, rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. Let's move on to verse 7 through 9. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. That word satisfied could mean filled. You could translate it that way. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Now there's some complex sentences there, but I think we can understand them if we just think a little bit. You ready? Let's do it. All the toil, that's your work, is for his mouth. That means you work in order to eat, okay? Now, in a lot of cultures, subsistence, work, and farming and living is a reality. If you don't get up in the morning and go out and hustle, you're not eating dinner. Now, for us, we have refrigerators and savings accounts and investments and God bless America, right? Don't hate, because I know your fridge is full. As much as you might hate, go to South America somewhere and see how you do in the jungle. Go hate on America there. I love you. I'm just saying. Yet, his appetite is not satisfied. Now, this is a second way in which the mouth pictures appetite, right? Because you're hungry, what do you do? You go seek out some food. Now, appetites are endless in people, aren't they? I want a this, I want a that. You see a new advertising, ooh, that would look nice. You click on it, you buy it from Amazon. Ooh, if I only had that speaker, that's better than my one I just got last week. It has four speakers instead of three, and its Bluetooth has a longer range. And these headphones only pick up these amount of decibels, but these ones, oh, the range of the decimals. And, and the new car, the 2020, is coming out, and you got the 2019, and so yours just isn't as faster, better, and stronger as the one you just bought and so on and so forth. The appetites are endless because the products we produce are endless. And friends, the endless purchasing of new will not satisfy your desire. And most of you don't have the money to purchase a new, so you just think that if you could purchase something new, then you'd be happy. It's a lie from hell. It's a lie from hell. And this text goes on to show this. Look, ready? For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? Now, he has said this before. This is not a new revelation. He ponders this all the time. He's saying, foolish people live in such a way that they produce harm and destruction and death. But then wise people live in such a way where what's their end, ultimately? Death too. No advantage, ultimately. Now, remember, he's thinking under the sun, not eternally. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Okay, now this is interesting. What does the poor man have who knows? He knows something. What does he know? He knows how to conduct himself before the living. Okay, what does that mean? Verse 9 has the answer to that riddle. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Okay, here's what the poor person can do. The poor person can see 
see with his eyes what he has, and he can gain some satisfaction in whatever little he has. Okay? This is the idea that when you have not had a car for a long time and you've had to depend on Uber and Lyft and take in the bus, then you get a car, that thing might have the muffler dragging, the brakes are squeaking, but you're like, praise God for my car. You are thankful. Meanwhile, meanwhile, someone who just got a new, you know, pull it off the lot, Nissan Versa, you're like, it's just a Versa. It's not a new Tesla. It's not exciting. Okay, that's the idea. There is a thankfulness that the poor know about in what God has given them than those who have don't know about. Because those who have often think not about what they have, rather what? About what they don't have. And so this is how they conduct themselves among the living. It's better that your eyes are satisfied with what God has given you. Oh God, thank you. Thankfulness is one of the hardest virtues to cultivate in this country, even as a Christian. Because you might just go on the internet to look at the Bible and the advertisements are just bombarding you. And the billboards change every five seconds. Flash, you need this. Flash, you need this. Flash, you need this. The commercials just keep coming. And has anyone else found it strange that when you talk about eating somewhere, all of a sudden you scroll on Instagram and that restaurant pops up? You're like, whoa. Direct advertising. And, And we're just, we're built to be dissatisfied, listen, under the sun. Under the sun. Keep that in mind. Then, here's the contrast, the wandering of appetite. Now, this is what we know about. I'm hungry for this, I get it, I'm not happy. I'm hungry for this, I get it, I'm not happy. I'm hungry for this, I get it, I'm not happy. And so on, we go through life. Right? Never satisfied appetites, never thankful for what you have, always wanting more. This is most of our lives. And Solomon says, this is vanity, which means vapor, wind, breath. And you want to exercise in futility? Go chase the wind. That's what your never satisfied appetite is like. When you chase to find fulfillment in created things, you will have the exercise of chasing the wind and never catching it. So friends, we have to do something different as Christians who want to live wisely. I was just talking with Vince on Friday, and he reminded me that he preached Proverbs 30 about a year ago in August, Uh, and I highly recommend you guys go back. And this is the, the flavor of an unsatisfied appetite. The leech has two daughters, give, give. Three things are never satisfied, four never say enough. Sheol, which is the grave, is never satisfied, always receiving more and more. The barren womb, you know what that means. The land never satisfied with water, meaning a desert arid place that you can dump gallons on and just, it's instantly gone. Dump more gallons on it, it's instantly gone. And fire that never says enough. Fire will just keep consuming whatever you give it. And this is a picture of the appetite of men and women that never find satisfaction. 
It's like the grave, it's like the barren womb, it's like land that is arid, and it's like fire. This is your satisfaction, never finding enough or being able to say, enough, enough. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Would that be your life? You just work and work to get more and do more and eat more, and yet you're still restless. Be honest with yourself. Is this your life? This is not what God has made us for, friends. Last two verses in the chapter. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. This verse 10 is clearly pointing to God. Cannot pick a fight with God. The more words you fight with God, the more vanity, wind, breath, vapor. And what is the advantage to man for multiplying your complaints against God? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain, again, vapor, breath, mist, life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him? under the sun. Now this text right here is trying to show us this. This is how 6 concludes. It's showing you that God is in control of your reality. He is sovereign, you are not. Look at this first verse. Whatever has come to be has already been named by who? God. God has already called it before it happened. Where do you get that from? Well, Isaiah 46, 8 to 10. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. That would be us. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What do you like, God? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's God. God is saying to you and I, I call things from ancient times before they happen. And what am I about? I'm accomplishing all of my will. Doesn't Psalm 115.3 say the same thing? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11 says the same thing. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, predetermined destiny, according to the purpose, there's his counsel, there's his uh, calling it before it happened, of him who works all things, unqualified all things, according to what? The counsel of his will. God is doing everything he's doing in your life and in my life according to whose will? Yours? Were you taught to pray, my kingdom come, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Or were you taught to pray something different? You see, we forget that, and yet we know that prayer by heart, don't we? And yet, what happens in our lives, we often raise the fist to heaven, and we say, how could you? Or if, we, if we're not that bold, at least we grumble and complain towards him. And isn't that the same thing as saying, God, how could you fist to the heavens? Because if he really does control your days, and if he really is letting anything that comes into your life come in by his good purpose and pleasure then for you to rage against it, what are you actually doing? That's what this text is saying. Whatever has come to be 
has already been named. And it is known what man is. What is man? What did God declare in the curse? Remember the frustration of the curse that colors this whole book? Or let's take the book of Ecclesiastes, let's turn it into a coloring book, and what should we color it with? We should color it with Genesis 3, thorns, thistles, curse. And then we should color it with Romans 8, frustration and futility under God's curse. That's under the sun. So what is man? From dust you were taken and to dust you shall return. That's what we are. And it's amazing, though, that though we are dust, and though we are accounted as nothing, God sets His love and affection on us. Isn't that amazing? He says, though you are dust, and though I will do all my purposes, I love you enough to include you in my family and to send my one and only son to substitute for you in life and death. And I'm going to raise him from the grave so that you too might rise to newness of life, to walk not under the sun. And then for eternity, with life, peace, and rest. No more unsatisfied desires. No more unsatisfaction. No more disappointments, depression, oppression. It's all gone. Look, and that, is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. This brings to mind Job, doesn't it? You remember Job 38 when, when God finally shows up in the whirlwind? And he's like, hey, Job, you've complained a lot. And your friends have spoken ill of me and not true. And so now here's what we're going to do. Dress yourself for action. I'm going to question you. And you're like, ooh, I hope that never happens to me. <laughs> Many people want to see God in a vision. You don't want that vision. You do not want God appearing to you in some kind of physical form or some kind of vision and saying, get dressed it's about to go down. It's time for you to answer me. <laughs> because we got a lot of questions for God. But what happens when God starts questioning you, the creature? And that's what Job 38 to the end of the chapter is all about. Job did not dispute with God. In fact, his response after God's done, he puts his hand over his mouth and he says, I have spoken foolishly. I repent in dust and ashes. I understand I am dust and I'm going to identify with it. The more words, the more vanity. So you just multiply your arguments to God, and it's more breath, more wind, more vapor, nothing. And what is the advantage to man if you do this? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Now, that's a good question, verse 12. The question is, you and I think we know what's good for us. How do you know? How do you know that the pain you're experiencing right now is not the very thing you need, the very good that you absolutely need to stay close to God and to not die and to not go off the deep end? How do you know? How do you know that your life right now is not the very good that God has for you? See, we always envision something else and we're never satisfied. But friends, if you haven't been able to find satisfaction yet and you've lived how many years you've lived, do you think you're going to keep doing the same thing and it's going to get different? Or is it possible that you might find satisfaction and thankfulness right where you are regardless if more comes? 
Wouldn't that be better? Wouldn't it be better to get overjoyed and thankful for the goodness that God has already blessed you with than saying more in a dispute to God? Then I'll be happy. No, that's not wise, friends. And the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to help us here. He's trying to help me here. Which he passes like a shadow. You know, shadows are here and they're gone. As soon as the lights go out, the shadow disappears. We are like that. We are like mist. This is what James says. What is your life? You're a mist. You're a vapor that appears for a little while and then you're gone. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? What's the answer to that? Only God can tell. We have no idea what's going to happen after we're gone. But God has eternity already mapped out amazingly. All right, now, I'm not going to leave us in the pit, okay? Chapter 6 just ends. You're in the pit. Find a way out, all right? So I'm going to help us get out, hopefully by grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Augustine, uh, North African church father, 300s into the early 400s, wrote a book called The Confessions. How many of you have read it? A few of you. Okay, some of you half because you're like half. I, I read a quote or two. The most famous quote from that book is this. You have made us, he's, the whole book is a confession and prayer to God, the whole thing. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. There's the answer. If you are not seeking the rest in the Creator, and rather seeking the rest in the creation, you will be restless. There's the answer, friends. It's that simple. Will you go to the creator and sustainer and the giver of all good things and find the satisfaction of the appetites? Or will you keep going after creation, asking it to do what it cannot do? Notice, cannot do. It can't do it. C.S. Lewis wrote a little book called The Weight of Glory. It's actually a lecture that got turned into a book, and uh, we've quoted it already in this series, but here's another quote from it. If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the picture here is you got a little, co- a little kid, he's on the side of the street, he's in a dirty mud puddle, he's got a little boat and he's got some action figures and he's playing and someone, a relative comes along and says, look, I want to give you the gift of a Caribbean vacation. Clear water, glorious colors, amazing scenery. And he's like, no, I love this right here. This is awesome. And the idea is he can't, he doesn't have a category for the Caribbean. And so you and I, friends, we have no category for infinite joy. But we can go to the one who has it and is it. He is the source. And so it's interesting that our desires, we might think, oh, they're they're too strong. We, We have all these longings. Meanwhile, he's like, no, they're too weak. 
You, you don't have appetite for the best. You want the least, and it can't give you what you want. Stop going after the little and go after the large. Stop going after the finite and go after the infinite. This is what C.S. Lewis is saying here. I'm going to close with this quote. Uh, it's a song. It's called Made for You by Matt Papa. How many of you have heard that song, Made for You? A couple of you. All right, good. It's a great song. Uh, it's on the album Look and Live, and, and you should stream it when you get out of here. You should listen to the whole album. Um, he says this. I was born here as a man of searching, always looking for myself. I was torn here. Oh, why am I so thirsty on a planet of empty wells? I was on a quest for matchless beauty. All I found just left me bored. I ran the world through just to taste its glory. Still, I was longing for something more. I was on a hunt for priceless treasure blind, wandering through slums. I was rummaging for some real pleasure. I was never anything but numb. Heaven a table and earth a crumb. Take this world away, Jesus, I was made for you. For a joy that will never die, for a well that won't run dry, I know only you can satisfy, Jesus, I was made for you for a place where I'm finally home, for a country that I'm free to roam, where I'm fully loved and fully known, Jesus, I was made for you. For a shameless, sinless embrace, for a beauty that can hold my gaze, it was only ever on your face, Jesus, I was made for you. There's your answer, friends. If you will not go to the source of all the beauty and the joy and the satisfaction, you will be disappointed, dissatisfied, and wandering. And so we have the choice before us. We can either go to him who is the source through Jesus the Son and then receive the Holy Spirit and ask him, let's plead with him, make me thankful and satisfied. Do you think God wants to do that for you? Do you think he wants you filling up your life with more creation and dissatisfaction? No, I think he wants you to be happy, to be satisfied, to stop longing, to stop having infinite appetite, but rather to have the appetite satisfied. And maybe what we should do, and let's do this for just a minute, let's stop and pray and let's ask God to give us what only he can a thankful heart, and a satisfied soul.